Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, I am recording this podcast early on a Tuesday morning. I just wanted to go over some of the economic data that came out early this week before leaving for Las Vegas Uh, later this afternoon. I'm hopping on a plane and heading out there. I've got a couple of events. We've got the uh, SALT Conference, Skybridge Alternative Asset Conference. I am on a panel Thursday morning should be very interesting, uh, lively discussion. One of the guys I think that's on there uh, with me is um, a blanket on the guy's name now, but he was he was he was in the Obama administration. He was an economic advisor. I I did a debate with him. Uh, Sperling, Gene Sperling. Uh, is on the panel. So he's the one guy that I think I'll have the most disagreement with. Steve Forbes is the moderator of the panel, and we've got some other interesting uh, participants. So that's going on uh, coming up. Then I'm going to be stopping on Friday in Salt Lake City. I have a one-day event there. If you're not, uh, if you live in the Salt Lake area and you haven't signed up, you can sign up to come see me on our the Europac website, europac.net. Then I'm going to be in L.A. for a few days and back in Las Vegas for the money show. And if you live in the Vegas area or even if you don't and you want to come to Las Vegas, you should come and hear me speak at the Las Vegas money show. We will be out there. We will have a booth. Some of the Europe Pacific Capital brokers will be out there, an opportunity to meet your broker if the broker you work with is there or meet some of the brokers. Or maybe if you're just going to be opening up 
a brand new account with Euro Pacific, uh, you can do so at the Money Show and uh, do it with one of the brokers who is working with me at the booth. I will be doing a workshop. Uh, among other things, you can check the schedule for my speaking appearances. Of course, I will be at the booth uh, much of the time, so we'll be happy to talk to clients and prospects alike while I am there. I'm going to be away from my office here in Connecticut for approximately 10 days, so a pretty big trip for me. Let me get to the news of the week. Most of it, of course, was bad. Yesterday, we got factory orders and they were for March. So this is, you know, part of Q3. And factory orders did manage to meet expectations for a rise of point of, of 2.1%. But here's the catch. They downwardly revised the February number. Um, in, and as a result of that, and that was to a negative number from a positive. And so even though it was up as much as they expected, since it rose from a lower level, the absolute number was still weaker than expected. In fact, this is the fifth straight year-over-year monthly drop. So in other words, March to March, March 2014, March 2015, you have a drop in factory orders. We've had that year-over-year monthly decline now for five consecutive months. So again, this number will probably uh, take a little bit off of the first quarter GDP, which is barely hanging on to positive territory. But the big news that is going to really uh, shatter an already weak uh, first quarter is the March trade deficit, where analysts were looking for about $40 billion, $41 billion. It was going to be a widening from a relatively low number that we had in February. February's trade deficit was only $35.9 billion. And um, that was a little bit higher than the original estimate of $35.4 billion, but it was still uh, one of the narrowest uh, monthly trade deficits we had in a while. Part of that might have been uh, related to the port strike, although now they're trying to say that the big surge in the trade deficit in March was related to the port strike. And so, I don't know, does the port strike make your trade deficit get up or down? Well, if you average the two months, it's still horrific. But the number we got for March, $51.4 billion, was almost $10 billion higher than expected. And in fact, when you add in the downward revision to February, uh, the miss was greater than $10 billion. Now, this is going to subtract significantly from fourth quarter GDP. So certainly fourth quarter GDP, when they revise it the first time, is not going to start with a positive number. It's going to be a negative number. And of course, if they have a revision to the deflator, and you remember, this is the first deflator we've had since 2008, which was the first deflator we've had since 1949, that was actually a negative number, which means it really wasn't a deflator. It was an inflator because we actually increased the nominal GDP because the government told us that the cost of living actually went down uh, during the the first quarter. Now, that's not going to be the case during the second quarter, and I will get to that uh, momentarily. But let me just get back to this trade deficit number, uh, this $51.4 billion. To put this number in perspective as far as how awful it was, it was the single worst trade deficit since October 2008. So you got to go all the way back to the beginning of the financial crisis to get a trade deficit as large as the one we just got. But also, if you want to think about it in percentage terms, how much worse the March number was from February, it is the largest 
monthly gain or percentage gain since 1996. So what is that? Almost 20 years to find a month where the trade deficit worsened by the same percentage it did this time. And in fact, if you exclude crude oil, the March trade deficit was the widest in history ever. Biggest trade deficit we've ever had. Now, if the economy is really so good, why do we have the worst trade deficit ever, right? It's like a corporation with the biggest loss, right? The CEO is out there talking about how great the company is doing, and they're losing more money than ever before. Because the trade deficit, you know, your balance of trade is like a corporate P&L, right? We're losing money. We spend more on the things we buy than we make on the things that we sell, right? We're opposite, operating at a deficit. So a horrible, horrible number. But think about this. Oil prices were very low in the first quarter, and, and, and certainly they were, they were low in March. They have started a surge. Oil prices have been headed higher almost every day. In fact, as I speak, we're up just shy of $2 a barrel. We've been up more than $2 a barrel. We're almost at $61 a barrel. This is the first time crude oil has even been above 60 in 2015, but we've been trending higher, and we certainly can go higher still, which means that the benefit that the trade numbers had from the cheaper imported oil, that's going to go away because now that oil is going to become increasingly more expensive to import. And of course, domestic production has come way down since the price of oil has come down. The rig count has collapsed. And so we're going to need more of that more expensive oil. And so that trade deficit is going to go up. But also think about the depressing effect that it's going to have on consumer spending. You know, there are a lot of people who lament the fact that the consumer didn't benefit from the cheap oil prices. And everybody was saying, hey, this is going to be a boom. We're going to have all this spending, right, because oil gas prices are cheaper. Consumers are going to pocket that windfall and then spend it at the mall, right? And everybody was looking for that to happen in the first quarter. And it didn't happen. And so now people are still waiting for it to happen in the second quarter. You know, maybe there's some kind of delay. Uh, It's taking longer for people, consumers to realize that, you know, this is a real windfall, that this is a permanent gain because oil prices are going to stay down forever. Right. This is what we were told. Well, I actually think that the consumer did benefit from cheap gas prices in the first quarter. It's just that he was in such bad shape from everything else that it was hard to see the benefit. Because it's just that the consumer would have been that much weaker had he not had that crutch, had he not been able to fall back on the cheap gas prices. Well, my point has been that crutch is being taken away. So what's going to happen is while we didn't see the positive impact of lower oil prices because it was obscured uh, beneath all the other bad things, we are going to see the negative impact as oil prices rise back up. Because it's just going to compound the problem where the cost of everything else is going up. Things like rents. You know, I looked um, at at a statistic over the weekend. I read a couple of uh, articles on rents. And rents have been rising so rapidly that the percentage of renters now that have to devote 50% of their income to housing, which is basically rent and utilities, is at the highest level ever. It's like 25%. It's up significantly from where that was in 2007. So rising rents have been squeezing uh, more and more Americans who have been priced out of the housing market. But of course, homeowners have been benefiting from the cheap interest rates. But 
Treasury yields have been rising. Uh, they're at the highest levels of the year. Uh, they've gone through the 2% level. Now they're, what are they, at 215, 218, something like that. Mortgage rates are also rising to their highest level for the year. So now you've got trouble on the horizon for the homeowner, too, if you've got an adjustable rate mortgage or people who are thinking about buying a house. The cost of doing that is going to go up. So it's not just rents that have been going up. And they've been rising something like, I don't know, three and a half, four percent 4% a year, much, much higher than the official uh, rate of inflation. But we got rising oil prices, we got rising interest rates, we got rising mortgage uh, uh, costs. And of course, if interest rates are going to go up, you're going to see auto loans, uh, cost of auto loans and credit card debt. And by the way, I, I forgot to mention this on the podcast for Friday. I totally forgot about this data point, but I did end up uh, including it in the comment section. April U.S. auto sales fell. Missing expectations for the fifth month in a row. And in fact, sales are now at their lowest year-over-year start for the year. So meaning January, February, March, April, those first four months. This is the weakest start of a year for the first four months since 2009. Now, what was happening in 2009? We were in a recession. So when it comes to auto sales, 2015 is the weakest year since the recession, the Great Recession of 2009. And what is that telling you? That the auto bubble has burst. And the auto bubble was part of what had been powering GDP, all these people buying cars they couldn't afford with cheap government loans. Well, now interest rates are starting to rise, which means that those, uh, those cheap loans are not going to be as cheap. So the bloom is rapidly coming off this recovery rose the dollar is reacting i guess negatively i mean it's down on the day across the board uh it could be down more i mean especially with such a horrific trade deficit you know back in the day when people actually cared about trade deficits a day like this the dollar would be getting crushed i mean it'd be actually getting obliterated because a huge trade deficit is very negative for your currency because it means you're flooding the world with the currency the world with a currency that it doesn't want Right. I mean, we're buying all these goods and we're not exporting goods to pay for it. So our creditors have all these dollars that there's no need for because there's nothing to spend them on. And so they would generally depress the exchange rate. But of course, the dollar being the reserve currency for now, uh, you know, we don't you know, we don't see the reaction that a normal country, normal country would be punished for such horrific trade data, although no other country has such horrific trade data as the United States, because when a country operates such a bad current uh, trade imbalance for year after year, the, the markets punish that currency and restrict the ability of its citizens to continue consuming beyond their means, and they force some sense of balance. But the United States has been spared the discipline of the market by virtue of the dollar being the reserve currency. And so our trade imbalances get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the economy continues to hollow out and we get in worse and worse shape. And so ultimately we are going to be uh, in store for a massive crisis. Gold market, you know, gold up about eight to 10 bucks. I mean, still just just below $1,200 an ounce. I mean, it's really banging up and down. Every time it gets above 1200 they seem to smash it back down. But of course, whenever they smash it back down, the buyers show up. So they really can't break the market, but there's still been enough overhead resistance to keep it from exploding. But I think eventually the buying is going to overwhelm the selling, and we will run out of sellers in the gold market. And when it finally goes up, it's going to go up in a rather spectacular way. And again, meanwhile, the dollar has turned. We're getting very strong days in the commodity currencies. 
Uh, the Aussie dollar up about a percent and a quarter. Uh, the Canadian dollar up maybe half a percent. Euro, I guess Euro up a third of a percent. Swiss franc almost up one full percent on the day for the Swiss franc. So, and this is, again, I'm doing this early in the morning with the Dow off about 87 points. Bad news not necessarily being good news for the market, although there was some good news. Uh, We got one data point this afternoon that beat estimates. I think it's interesting how, you know, the media reacts as soon as there's one good data point. You know, they they don't care about all the bad ones because almost all the news is negative. But every once in a while, you know, you get a kernel of good news. and The media jumps all over that. Ah, you see, you see, this proves the economy is strong. We did get the April ISM service uh, non-manufacturing index unexpectedly rose to 57.8 from 56.5 in March. So that was better than estimates. But that happened despite the fact that new orders plunged into negative territory. So, you know, there was a, a negative aspect of that supposedly benign report or better than expected report. I think that would be troubling to see that big drop in new orders. But also the April PMI that came out at the same time as the ISM, that actually dropped from 592 in March to 57.4, and that was a bigger drop than was expected. So again, if April is supposed to be the spring when things get better, why is the data getting worse than in March? And remember, the data wasn't that great in the first quarter because we got only 0.2% GDP growth, which of course is going to be revised negative based on all the bad data that has come out since They made that guesstimate. And of course, the worst being the horrific trade numbers that came out today that are so far above what the government would have used to calculate that number. And again, the biggest uh, joke of all is is claiming that the cost of living uh, went down uh, where you have an inflator instead of a deflator. So a lot of things came together in order to get a positive GDP momentarily uh, in Q1. But I think we're going to revise that away. The big question is going to be, what is going to happen for the Q2 number? All eyes on that. All eyes, of course, are going to be on the non-farm payrolls number. That is going to come out on Friday. And these numbers up until last month, you know, last month was the first time in a while that we got a, a bad, a bad uh, payrolls number, right? That number came out as a, at 126,000. They were looking for a number similar to the number they're looking for this time, which is 220,000. And of course, the estimate is from as low as 180,000 to as high as 335,000. That's how much optimism there is on there, right? Nobody is looking for the a- a- April number to be lower, uh, than the March number. The only question is, how much higher is it going to be? And you have some people that think it's going to be as high as 335,000 uh, new jobs created. Again, the consensus is 220,000. So we're going to see the consensus is also for the unemployment rate to keep falling from 5.5% uh, in the prior month, March, down to 5.4%, You know, heading towards that 5% level that the Federal Reserve claims uh, we're headed for. But this is going to be a big number, because if we miss again, um, then I think it's the dollar is going to get crushed. Now, I don't know. This number has been very uh, surprising and confounding over the, the months for how many numbers we got above 200,000. And the, the, uh, the reason for that, and I pointed this out many, many times, is because all of the part-time jobs just skew the whole thing, because in, a job's a job, right? So if you, get a, if you get a job and you work one hour a week— you know, that job is part of the 200,000 jobs that are created, you know. And so if two one, if, if, if somebody loses a, a 40 hour job, right, and then two people get jobs where they work part time, that's a net gain of one job. 
Right. And so, you know, yeah, the hours work or the average hourly earnings, you know, you'll, you'll tend to pick it up in there. But as far as the raw, the raw number of jobs, right, that's all they're counting. How many jobs, not quality, right, not pay, just the number and the net number, because obviously some jobs are lost and some jobs are created. But the problem is the jobs that are lost are better quality than the jobs that are created. And so that's what, what has been skewing it. But I still, based on all of the other weak data, that has been coming out. My guess is that we'll have a weak report. But again, I thought we'd have a weak report before and have been surprised uh, by the fact that they keep coming up with a strong report. But of course, at, one, at some point, people are going to have to realize that these strong data points don't matter, that just creating a part-time economy doesn't cut it, just because a lot of people have low-paying part-time jobs. In fact, that's one of the reasons people are so uh, you know, they don't understand or scratching their heads and they're trying to figure out, you know, we have all these jobs, but why aren't the consumers spending, right? Why are retail sales weak? Why are auto sales coming down? Why are home sales? Why is the percentage of first time home buyers at uh, record lows? You know, why now do 20, 25% of all renters have to spend half their income on, on their housing costs? You know, we have all these jobs. Why is the economy getting worse? Why don't we see the benefit of all this employment in these other statistics? And the answer to that question is because the jobs don't pay very much, either because they're just low paying or the workers don't work that many hours. uh, And so they don't net end up with a lot of money. Meanwhile, as much as the Fed wants to pretend that there's no inflation, the cost of living is rising and it's rising for everything. The only benefit we had recently is that there was one significant cost that was going down and that was fuel, gasoline, heating oil, things like that. And now that's changed. Now that price is going up. So the one thing that the consumer had uh, to fall back on, right, now it's gone. That rug's been pulled out from under them. Safety net, gone. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They're all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold. Today, it's more important than ever to understand the value of gold in your portfolio and to keep a close eye on major market developments. Subscribe to my monthly video cast and you'll be the first to hear my latest analysis on gold investing and the currency wars. Visit goldvideocast.com right now to subscribe for free. I call the dot-com bust, then the housing bust, and I advise clients to diversify into foreign equities and hard assets while the rest of Wall Street laughed at me. Now I want to keep you up to date on the next crisis that is brewing. My gold video cast also includes personal interviews I've conducted with other contrarian investors like Jim Rickards and Axel Merck. Gold has gone up 256% since 2003, but it has a lot further to go. Don't miss the rally. You can prosper during this time of currency wars, but only if you stay educated. Get a free subscription to my gold video cast at goldvideocast.com. That's goldvideocast.com.